0: Hi, this is Robert Wright, and I just want to quickly say three things. First, what you're about to hear is the second in a series of conversations with Josh Summers in which we discuss cognitive empathy and mindfulness. Second, this was, like the first conversation, originally a live stream on YouTube, so it has a kind of unusual character. Third, josh and i will do another live stream on this and related subjects this wednesday august 22nd at 8 p.m eastern time and i encourage you to join us if you want to do that just check out my twitter feed on wednesday for the link you click to see the live stream which i guess leads to the question of what my twitter handle is and the answer is at Robert Ryder, R-O-B-E-R-T-W-R-I-G-H-T-E-R. It's a pun. And by the way, if you do sit in on the proceedings and you like them, please click the Like button because that will lead YouTube's all-knowing, all-powerful algorithm to alert other viewers to the existence of the live stream. It will also lead the algorithm to bring more people to the recorded version of the conversation that stays on the YouTube site, after the live streaming is over. Okay. With that as preamble, here's my chat with Josh. I hope you like it and I hope you do consider joining us for the third part of this conversation on Wednesday. Thanks. Uh I think we're live Josh. Um so so uh and I think the uh yes. So if you So I believe that our vast listening and viewing audience is actually seeing and hearing us. Now, assuming we have the technology under control, which will remain touch and go possibly for the rest of the hour. So anyway,
1: hi, Josh. Hey, Bob, welcome to the audience.
0: Yes, uh, thank you for being here. Let me introduce us, I'm Robert Wright, this is The Wright Show, you're Josh Summers, podcaster, yoga teacher, sage, guru, stop me when I've gone too far. You've gone way too far.
1: Okay, so podcaster, yoga but stop teacher. At, stop at guru.
0: <laughs> stop, at, stop after guru. Yeah,
1: well, stages, stages over the top.
0: Okay, uh, you're Josh Summers. I'm Robert Wright. As I, I think I said that. So we're having um, a conversation. Welcome to everyone who's listening live for starters on YouTube. Um, welcome to everyone who will listen later on YouTube, uh, and everyone who will listen on the Wright Show um audio podcast so this is the second conversation that you and i have had so it's um we had one last week um at this time so it's second in a series that is of unknown duration that is to say we're not sure whether we're going to keep having these conversations and if so what the scope will be and we're going to talk about that tonight uh at at some point um We've talked about it a little, and I have some ideas. You have some ideas, and we'll, we'll and we'll share them. And we welcome feedback. And of course, we'll also talk concretely about the things we said we'd talk about tonight: cognitive empathy, mindfulness, how all that applies to politics and to your own, you know, mental health. Uh, and we're getting to a lot of stuff. Let me quickly recap how the, the, these conversations started. Um, they literally began tragically. Tragically is a word that's used loosely, but in this case, uh, they began with the death, uh, I think, exactly a month ago. Um, of Michael Brooks, well-known um, journalist and Internet broadcaster. I knew Michael a little, um, had been on his show, he'd been on my show. You knew him better than I did, had known him longer than than I had, had been a um, collaborator of his and, and a co-author of his As it, as it happened. A few days before he died, um, he had emailed me, said, want to do a live stream on cognitive empathy and um, reactive politics. I said, sure. It was we were scheduled to go um, and then we lost him. And then one of his fans suggested on Twitter that I go ahead and do a live stream on cognitive empathy, either alone or with somebody. I reached out to you as a consequence of that uh michael's mother joined us in last week's conversation donna and for my money that's the best part of the conversation if people haven't seen it uh just search for my name josh's name on youtube and it's the august 13th conversation donna shows up about 35 minutes um into it so uh it's a great conversation but a lot was left unsaid about cognitive empathy and um related matters um because I think you and I agree that once you start thinking about cognitive empathy, which we'll, we'll describe for those who who weren't with us, but it connects to a lot of things. You wind up uh, talking about mindfulness, which was a shared interest of yours and mine and Michael's. You actually met me and Michael independently in meditation retreats Um, and all kinds of other uh, subjects coming to play. And, you know, I, I did want to, um, play, and I hope this will be audible. I'm using crude technology, namely my smartphone, but there's this riff that Michael did um, the night before he died that uh, a lot of us kind of circulated on Twitter, Uh, but he uses the word empathy. He's not talking about cognitive empathy uh, exclusively by any means, but I think he gives you a, a hint of how many things you know, fit into a kind of a unified conversation, including um, the subject of of empathy, and I'll I'll get into that. So I uh, I hope this is reasonably audible.
1: What does it actually mean to be truly global to the extent we can, local, national, and international simultaneously, east, west, north, south, but from a place of actual growth and empathy? And this is where, again, this this questions of consciousness come in. The questions of cultivating empathy, cultivating compassion, cultivating awareness, the complete antithesis of social media modes, long-term thinking, compassion, seeing complexity, comfort with oneself, solitude, the opposite of instant gratification, the attempt to constantly humanize and not dehumanize your fellow humans. These are all completely countervailing forces to the market technologic that subsumes all of us today. What does it actually mean to be truly global to the extent we can, local, national, and
0: international? Okay, there that's the beginning again. So, you know, um I I I can imagine, I mean to me, all the th- the various things he's he's touched on do seem logically connected. I mean, I think the question of cognitive empathy and and more familiar kind of empathy, emotional empathy, are very much related to the idea of, you know, building a better planet of of a global consciousness, of building a better um, politics nationally and locally as well. Um, and the thing he said about social media is interesting because I I, I think the suggestion there is that it has bad effects, not only at the individual level, you know, at the level of kind of individual sanity and mental health, but also at the at the level of the social system. And, um, and I very much uh, agree with that. Um, you know, as for what he said at the end about capitalism, I'm not as far left as Michael was. Uh, I'm not a socialist, but it's certainly true that uh, capitalism, notwithstanding any virtues it may have, does work to get us addicted to various unhealthy things, including unhealthy things on the internet, including social media and these algorithms that are designed to maximize profit uh, are seem to be largely pernicious. Um, So I guess, Josh, I imagine all of these things and more uh, being good candidates for continued conversation between you and me there's more I could say about that, but maybe I'll hold off and just just see um, what you want to add, if anything, and where you want to take the conversation.
1: Yeah, the, the thing that I would just jump in with is, um, I think, in light of Michael's death, um, and I, I've been thinking about this in the last few days, especially um, in light of our conversations, um you know, he was, he was a close friend of mine. And as I said, in my tri- podcast tribute to him, I, I quoted Martin Amos who was talking about Christopher Hitchens when Christopher Hitchens passed away. Amos said, when your best friends die, they, um, they bequeath to you, their love of life. And it becomes your solemn duty to love life the way they love life because they're no longer there. And, um, you know, I've personally been, fairly quiet in in my world. Like I've been quietly teaching meditation and yoga and and engaging um, with those practices on that level. But I saw Michael in a way going for something. He was, he was, he was, his heart was fully steaming straight ahead um, for his vision. And I think, you know, in the time that I've known you, I've seen a development in Uh, kind of the way you conceive of and and diagnose what's going on at both macro and and, uh, micro level. And I think you have a pretty interesting worldview that intersects nicely with elements of the Dharma. And I mean, I use that word very generally to refer to kind of a spiritual orientation and a path in life. Um, and I, I think that's part of the motivating thing for me having a conversation with you is to explore that intersection of the Dharma with psychology and politics and, and uh, get your frame of the diagnosis and potential cures um, more clearly expressed in terms of um, sort of this distribution in, in listenership and listenership and, and operating in people's minds, trying to see th- these lenses. Because um, last night I wrote down, you know, a good writer. A good writer, and this is not rocket science to say, but a good writer is capable of uh, changing your worldview. They can literally open up a new way of seeing the world. And it took me, I spent four minutes doing this, but I listed down your books and I made a little note on how each book kind of changed or or altered my worldview. And, you know, that's no small, (laughs) sorry for, you know, I thought we could actually, if we, if these conversations continue, we can have you know listeners share their own experience of how your books have changed their worldview. And well, I, and I'm I not that, sure how many there are. <laughs> who have no, but the, to on that but, subject, but, but but we could add a special element that the more backhanded the compliment was, the more likely we would share it or, or we tweet. Uh, about it. I'm all for I'm
0: all for backhanded compliments. Um,
1: well, well is, anyway, I,
0: I'm flattered that you were able to compile uh, a list. I mean, I mean, I've helped you out by not writing many books in the course of my life. Uh, made it easier.
1: But well, um, my, my only my only backhand remark was going to be that, you know, your four books each changed my worldview some to some degree, um, and I only had to read about one or two of them. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> okay,
0: yeah. Uh, reading the reviews will do on the rest. The um, so. I guess I would say, I mean, before we dive into concrete stuff and then maybe at the end, um, come back to the question of where exactly this conversation can head. I mean, I agree with you. It, I I I uh, I am personally, uh, needless to say, a fan of my worldview. Uh, I do think I could do a better job of articulating it and making it user-friendly. And if I could have conversations that help me do that, that would be great. The one thing... I feel conviction about is that, you know, you mentioned the diagnosis and the cure. The one thing I feel conviction about, or one thing I feel conviction about, uh, is that there is a a, a parallel between the, the individual level and the societal level of diagnosis and of cure. In other words, there's a sense in which by saving yourself, you can save the world, or by preserving, restoring your mental health, you can build a healthier world and a healthier nation. You know, you can, you can um, be a, be a happier, better, more fulfilled person, and in the process, create a better world. I really believe that. And I mean, it sounds like a cliche, but it's not necessarily true. And in fact, you can certainly imagine a universe in which it wouldn't be true. Uh, You know, you can imagine a world where the two are exactly inversely correlated. And the happiest, most fulfilled people are the people who are doing the most damage to the world. And look, there are definitely a lot of happy people who are doing a lot of damage to the world. And that is part, part of the problem we face. And the world does often give material and social rewards to people who are who are who are damaging it. I mean, that's just you know, there's evidence everywhere around. Still, I do think that by focusing on the body of ideas that you and I share an interest in, and I know Michael shared an interest in um, you can reconcile uh, personal progress, personal growth, personal happiness with the betterment of the world. I'm a firm believer in that. And I don't, and I do think convincing people of that uh, and enabling them to harness it to actually make use of it and, you know, pro- providing practical examples and so on. Um, and and would be because it's something I need help on. I, I, I don't think I've done an adequate job of it. And and, and uh, maybe if it emerges in conversation, uh, that would be great.
1: Yeah, that's that's part of what we're, we're getting at. Um, I think two caveats come to mind or two, two things just things we should mention. Uh, one is that, you know, there's a way that a lot of the conversations and even the, the the voices that address sort of the integration of the development of consciousness or spirituality in within the world of politics, it can it can carry with it a whiff of sanctimony, a, a tone of um, preciousness that I think we both share a little bit of difficulty, if not a hindrance of aversion around, and so um I, I part of what interests me about talking to you about this is i think we can keep it uh, in a keep it open in a very real way and and even though we we value these things and we're practitioners we're i think we can both be honest about how uh, imperfect a, a practitioner we are and and oh i won't
0: have any trouble establishing that it, it, by practitioner you mean meditation practitioner i take it or practitioner of the dharma yeah one or both yeah and and let me say i don't think we're asking people in order to uh, try to benefit from anything we have to say to become Buddhist or to buy into all of Buddhist philosophy. I'm a fan of Buddhist philosophy and the Buddhist conception of human psychology. But I think uh, a lot of the, you don't have to buy it wholesale. You, 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 you can, you can take what we offer that's, that's useful. Um, and uh
1: yeah. And, I, and in your worldview, I see the Dharma being just one tool of many to help navigate the complexity and challenges we're facing. It's yeah. not it's, it's not a panacea. And, I, and if anything, the thing I didn't get to say already was that I feel like, you know, to, 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 to blow up Bob a little bit more. Like I encourage
0: elements. I encourage it depends on what you mean by blowing up. There's a sense in which I don't want to be blown up. So pump you. Up. Which I'm, if you mean puff up, like puff up my ego, have at it. If you if you yeah, don't mean no. like detonate me,
1: I mean we're, we're the, the thing we're 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 touching into is that there's there's something about this moment this this time right now that feels incredibly apocalyptic in a way, mm-hmm. and and so we're facing this existential issue, and you know if the dharma is to continue, I would suggest that it even necessitates onboarding elements of your worldview so that it's more engaged because that's the other, that's the other side of say, the spiritual mind, which are the spiritual personality, uh, which I'm guilty of myself, which is that it's easy to be kind of, uh, somewhat complacent, internal, non-engaging, um, and, and passive, have sort of a passive approach to life where you're not fully engaging with, 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 difficult conflictual things that, that are that are arising and we're just at the point where that feels like it's no longer tenable.
0: Right. Now, I have uh a pretty apocalyp apocalyptic, apocalyptic viewer. Let me pause by the way and do something um maybe slightly crass and self-serving that I think Michael would applaud me for because I learned it from him. He he emailed me once and uh he said, check this out. And what it was, was a a recording of a live stream he had done as a monologue, okay? He said, I'm curious what you think of this. And one thing I noticed, I'd never seen him do a a monologue live stream, which first of all impresses me tremendously that you would have the courage to do that. Um, But I noticed uh, that he would say to people, smash the like button. Like if you're watching on Facebook, hit the like button. And the reason is it feeds the algorithm. So whether you're watching, you know, live or watching later, it draws more people. So if you want to help us build audience, I encourage that. And I, I always feel like bad about being, being self-serving like that. But you know, one thing I learned from Michael is damn it, if you believe in your cause, I mean, it's yeah. a jungle out there. There's people fighting for attention and a lot of them are not people we consider good actors, and um, so you just ask people who wish you well to help. Uh, yeah, so on the apo- uh, yeah, um, like people who want to help avert the apocalypse. I mean, I do. Uh, I am I mean, apocalyptic. He, well,
1: well, go can ahead. Can you give, can you give a nutshell diagnosis of the problem? Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, the
1: problem. because because you see, I mean, you see, cognitive empathy as part of the solution. Um, and yes. we'll be looking at discussing how how strong of a solution or how uh, the therapeutic solution that will offer. But what, before we get into that, what what is it that what are the what are the driving forces or the the, the, the core issues that are fueling the symptom of what you're feeling?
0: Okay, so let me um, at the risk of being self indulgent, let me back up and talk just a little bit. About this book I wrote called Non-Zero. I talked about it with Michael in the last live stream I did with him, where we mainly focused on the dangers of a Cold War with China, which also involves cognitive empathy. I mean, just just quickly, cognitive empathy um, is just it's it's not the same as like identifying with people's emotions, sharing their pain. It's just understanding their point of view, understanding and and I think and I and I wrote a piece recently that made a point that I also made when I spoke with. Michael, that, you know, one misunderstanding, you know, all of these people who are like agitating for a new Cold War with China, most of them don't understand what the, how the average Chinese person looks at the world or how, of course, there are lots of different perspectives over there, but they do, a lot of them do not understand, A, that there's a lot of admiration and support for the leadership over there, in part because, uh the leadership of the last several decades has radically increased living standards among the lower, the lower half. And B, all of these belligerent things Trump is doing, and I'm not saying there's no case in which we need to get tougher with China, fine, but, but the, all of the, there's a lot of gratuitous belligerence, And one thing a lot of people don't realize is that increases among many Chinese, the degree of their support for the leadership. It, it, it strengthens nationalism. So so that's just a concrete example of cognitive empathy, just helping you understand the situation. Just take the time, like read up on what people are thinking and doing in China. So I just wanted to give one quick I felt by now we should give them another a clear a clearer definition of cognitive empathy, one application. That said, that's a tangent. So should I get back to my main like highway thing, or do you want something you want to say?
1: Well, no, no. It, I mean, it, it's. I mean, yeah. You read up, and that's the the question. Then becomes, you know, for the for the, for a general audience, and this, this is a question that cropped up in my head last week after we spoke. Is like, read up, okay? Where am I supposed to read? Where am I going to get that, that the the, the, the Chinese populace take on how they feel about Xi Jinping?
0: Well, um, you know, I try to draw attention. Uh, you know, I put out a, a newsletter, a non-zero newsletter where this piece of mine in China appeared. I try to, I, you know, we often put out a readings section in that. And I try mm-hmm. to draw attention to pieces that that facilitate cognitive empathy to give you a perspective on what actors are thinking. Like in the early days of the, um, what various actors are thinking of the Trump years, when I personally thought the resistance was just going overboard, being too reactive, taking too much of Trump's troll bait, and, and, and in a way, strengthening his base by going berserk about everything he said and by saying really unflattering things about his supporters. Um, I used to call attention. I used to work hard to get people to understand like how Trump supporters or at least some of them are looking at things. And in fact, at that point, the newsletter was called the Mindful Resistance Newsletter. But all that said, let me, let me say. I think if we can develop an, if if we move forward to this develop an audience and and a group of supporters, we should both try harder to draw their attention to things that can help them understand. I mean, that could be a regular feature. The, The perspective of someone somewhere in the world whose perspective you think is not understood.
1: Um, well, well, and I also think that, I mean, it's a very simple thing to observe, but, you know, this ties right back to the, 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 this, the mention of social media and, and sort of the, the, the fragmentation, the, the acontextual, the, the, the siloed sources yeah. of, of information that people are getting, that it just makes it so much harder to find and figure out access, how to access. It, it, it's,
0: it's worse than that. It's worse than just a silo. It's that within your silo. The people who will gain stature most surely are the people who will caricature and demonize the people in the opposing silo. So the it, the easiest way to get a bunch of Twitter followers is to is to like, say unflattering things about uh, Trump supporters, uh, ridicule, just you know, just find some hapless dolt. You know, who does something stupid in a supermarket in the Midwest and act as if they're typical of all Trump supporters or something and ridicule them. Um, and so the system, you know, it, it's just uh, I mean, a term that naturally comes into play is the psychology of tribalism. I understand, by the way, why some people find the term tribalism offensive It's not a an easy substitute. But anyway, people know what I mean by that. It's just a psychology of groupishness and and. Uh, The psychology of identifying so intensely with your group that it warps your perception of the world and and shuts off cognitive empathy systematically. And that's one thing to remember about cognitive empathy is that human nature is, I think, designed to shut it down in certain circumstances. And and sometimes those are the circumstances in which we most need to activate it, because if you shut it down, you'll wind up with like wars and things.
1: Right. And. And this is, as I've been reflecting on this more, you know, I I theoretically see the value in being able to adopt it, but I've, you know, I have, we've been discussing, I've seen the limitations of my own ability to access it and, you know, in thinking of it in more of a general terms in our population and and due to the evolutionary forces that prime us to more of the emotional form of empathy, you know, it it is a question that I have, how does the the cognitive side of it become kind of instantiated in, in, in consciousness so that it's, that it, it, it's, it's more accessible. It, it does, it, it's not so clear to me yeah. how it, how it, how it can get reinforced. Um, well, and, and I think that's where I think some other, some holistic approaches to both dealing with the emotional side of empathy and getting familiar with that, what that dynamic is like, and also, Looking at ways that an environment can reinforce either the, the empathic or the, the sort of the emotional or the cognitive side, mm-hmm. um, it, it uh, just it, it is a tall order, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, it is, and and I think it it leads naturally to things like mindfulness. And I think a good concrete example you were telling me this story about you had a, an encounter with a neighbor and a and a dog, which I think. Is illustrative of how challenging cognitive empathy is. Now, let me say I'm aware that we started to. You asked me to like diagnose the problem with the world and what you know what is leading us to apocalypse and how to short circuit it. Let's promise to get back to that before the end of this conversation. But yeah, but but I think this this is a fruitful thread uh, because. So, do you want to tell the 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 tale of you and your neighborhood dog? You've just moved into a new neighborhood.
1: Yeah, I should give the context just a little bit. So it's pandemic, um, nearly out of an amical divorce. But, you know, there's some tensions around that or emotional strife from that. Um, Michael died. So that was a very hard hit. Um, And the morning that we went live last week, I woke up, uh, checked my phone and found myself instantaneously in a family feud that I didn't plan on the personal family stuff. And, um, I put the phone down.
0: Not, not t- the same as the, not, not, uh, this is your immediate family. This is yeah, like not, your, yeah. Not not the divorce situation. Okay. No,
1: no. It was a sibling situation. Yeah. But, um, I step out, walk, start to walk my dog. And now I have this neighbor three doors up who has a little yappy dog that's never on leash. And, um, sure enough, I, as I approached the driveway, the yappy dog came running out, charging at us and, And I kind of charged at the dog, having having, had had the proverbial straw hit my back. And I kind of went apoplectic for a short period of time, charged at the dog, yelled at the dog, scared the dog away. But then I saw the owner standing there um, and I started telling them in quite loud language that this was really bad. And I noticed that they were Asian and I thought Chinese because there's a lot of, I hear a lot of Mandarin in my neighborhood. And I started telling them in Mandarin how this was really bad. I had very rudimentary Mandarin from some time I lived in Taiwan. I could just tell them this was very, very bad, very, very expletive bad. And how did how did he react? Um, the, the, well, they all kind of froze, and I just sort of continued to. Well, walk they were on. probably blown
0: away that you knew how to speak Chinese.
1: Well, and that's the thing is, as I've been thinking about it, I wonder if my ability to pull out the Chinese was a sign of my cognitive empathy coming on board. It I certainly reckon-
0: distinguishes you from the average Caucasian in that neighborhood, I'm sure. Who's
1: losing their 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 shit on, uh, on, the, on the sidewalk. Yeah. Um, but but this is what I'm kind of getting. I mean, I'm using this as an example. I, I think what it's saying is it's, it's sort of suggestive of the priming effect, which I think many people are feeling now. There's the, the, the level of tension. The seawater is rising, rising, right. rising. We're feeling it. And then it just takes the slightest thing, and this, I think this is what you're concerned with. China is that it's you know as, as tensions rise, you get to this and this, and then suddenly the slightest little mistake, like there's a naval error or, or an air naval, or an air collision, and as Kevin Rudd was just saying yesterday, and suddenly things yeah. blow up. Now
0: I I um I, I don't do you, what, uh, this, this, this well go ahead say anything more. What, you
1: what want. do you, what do what do you, you want? Well, I was going to say, say first
0: of all, you know, cognitive empathy is not some kind of miracle cure in all situations, and and I don't have one in this case, but I would say it would be interesting to know and useful to know if you want to try to amend this guy's behavior in the future. Is it just that like he uh, maybe he comes from a culture in which you you kept dogs, dogs off leashes and he didn't know that this was the norm? Or is he like an asshole who just doesn't give a shit? And there are people like that. Uh, and it, w- it would just be useful to know that. But Here's, here's, a, here's a thing about psychology, and it really applies both to this encounter with a, a Chinese American uh, uh, and with the whole thing with China, which is that, you know, last time we spoke, I talked about this um, cognitive bias called attribution error. And one feature of it is that, uh, I won't go into it all again, but one feature is that once you have defined someone as like an enemy, a rival, a problem, then all of their, whenever they do anything bad, anything you don't like, you are not going to seriously entertain the hypothesis that there's some circumstantial explanation that, oh, they just didn't know what the norms were or they had had a bad day or whatever. You're gonna jump to the conclusion that that's just an asshole. That's just a bad person. And that's why in the case of China, like the more the the kind of like cold war fans succeed in framing China as bad, the harder it's going to get to be, to get Americans to try to exercise cognitive empathy, just look at things and like say, well, what is the perspective of the Chinese people? And what is the perspective of the leader? You know, he's a politician. How's he looking at the world? All of which I think is useful. So I I, I would say uh, two things. and. and I mean, where mindfulness comes in, and you know, you've you've been in a very mindful state, like day eight on a meditation retreat, right? You know that when you're really in the mindfulness zone, you're not going to be as reactive, and you would be more amenable to to asking the question like, um, "Hmm, I wonder, does he not know the norms? Is it this? Is it that?" Now, it may it may be that your reaction was perfectly effective. That can happen. It, you know, if if he just didn't know the norms, that could work. But I may, I, I'm just making the point that, um, uh, two points, that framing someone as the enemy, a rival a bad person can shut off cognitive empathy and therefore reinforce the image of them as bad, lead you to exclude evidence that they're not bad by their nature, A, and then B, The virtue of mindfulness is it's more likely to keep the spigot of cognitive empathy open.
1: Right. With the idea of attribution error, would you agree that when, when the attribution bias, so the attribution error bias is in play, it skews someone's probability to project in a certain way consistently? By project, you mean... Cause, cause really, because with, with, with the attribution, the person that's aggrieved is projecting blame, like, like a, like a definitive, they're, they're inferring a particular kind of intent on the actor. They're not, they're not taking into contextual elements that could be driving that person's behavior in, in some yeah. way. They're, 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 they're ascribing this kind of yeah. intent, intent or agency around the action. That's, that's odious.
0: Yeah. It, 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 it shuts you, it makes you less open to a particular kind of explanation of their motivation. Now, if it's a friend or ally, it works in reverse. If they do something bad, you're more likely to say, well, they didn't get their nap or they were, it was peer group pressure or blah, 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 something circumstantial. They didn't know the rules of the road. They didn't know the norms. And if they do something good, then you're likely to say, yeah, that's, their good people. That's the kind of people they are. Again, if you define somebody as enemy or rival, it's the opposite. If they do something good, you go, oh, they're just like, they're showing off in front of this person or whatever. You you dismiss it as circumstantial, situational in origin. The, the, the terms... You in, forgive in, it. In,
1: what's that? You forgive it. You give them the benefit of the doubt. Um,
0: well, you forgive uh, friends, and allies, right, uh, friends and allies when they do bad things. but But again, it isn't just that you forgive them. It's that you come up with a theory of their motivation that is conducive to forgiveness. Okay. The key, the the terminology in attribution error is situational or dispositional. Like if you see somebody who's rude at the checkout counter, do you say, Oh, that's an asshole. That's a dispositional explanation. Or do you say, well, maybe they had a bad day. That's a situational explanation. And we are biased toward one or the other Depending on whether we have we are already putting somebody in the friend or enemy category. Okay. That's attribution error.
1: And and I think we're now coming around to your non-zero thesis. Okay. <laughs> Let right? me back because, up. Because because how you do whether you see the person as friend or enemy is often defined by the kind of game interaction that you're playing with them. Yeah. Um that's probably putting it too simply, but
0: Yeah, and in fact, I mean, the,
1: the, in a way- cause, I mean, cause, cause, Pause for a second, because let's do a recap of what zero-sum games are and what non-zero-sum games are. Because right. there are probably some people that need a, need a re- recap on that On that. Right, but, because the,
0: the plot spoiler is that I think cognitive empathy often helps you play non-zero-sum games to win-win outcomes. So a non-zero-sum game is a game that can have a win-win outcome or a lose-lose outcome. You know, a zero-sum game, like if you're playing tennis, every point is good for one player to the exact extent that it's bad for the other. So it's zero-sum, plus one for one player, minus one for the other. It's always adds up to zero. But if you're playing doubles, your relationship to the person on your side of the net is entirely non-zero-sum. So, And, and that's, a, that's a purely non-zero-sum situation. You will either both win or both lose. There are more complicated versions of non-zero-sum games, but the main thing is that there can be win-win outcomes. There don't have to be win-lose outcomes. And um, I argue that, and there's all kinds of examples, like uh, nuclear war is a non-zero-sum game because you both lose, two nuclear powers, both lose. So winning, the win-win outcome is to not have the war. Uh, I maintain that understanding the situation of the other player in a nuclear standoff can help you realize a win-win situation. And in fact, the Cuban Missile Crisis is, in a way, uh, an example. We now know that uh, Kennedy did a secret deal with I guess it was it Khrushchev at the time, whoever it was um, that uh, Kennedy would remove missiles from Turkey, which Russia found threatening if Russia or the Soviet Union at that time withdrew its missiles from the area of uh, the, from the area, the vicinity of Cuba and did, didn't try to install missiles there. They kept it secret because they both understood, they both, first of all, they both understood what was important to each one as a matter of politics and national security. They, they, they both understood that certain things couldn't become public. Like, um, like the, the Soviet Union understood um or that uh, that uh, Kennedy wouldn't want it known politically that he had pulled these missiles out of Turkey right away. They understood his political situation. So that's an example of how cognitive empathy can can specifically help you solve a non-zero-sum game. Now, just...
1: But in, 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 can I interject for a second or question yeah. you? Um, is it your understanding or is your sense that through our... through the evolutionary development of life that we are now sitting at the top of uh, is it your sense that there's been a kind of developmental transition from a, a higher percentage of zero sum games being played in the world to more and more non zero sum games emerging I, thought, I sort of thought that that was maybe and that's maybe it's, I, should have read well, the book I the would say sense. and
0: i mean this is a, a thesis of the of my book non zero is that there are a lot of zero sum games in the world. And they're not all horrible. And they will always be with us. There is true competition. Uh and that, you know. Um, but uh but the argument is that as technology has evolved and and kind of gotten us from hunter gatherer village to the brink of, of forming a true global community. The basically more and more people have found themselves in a non-zero-sum relationship with more and more people at greater remove. So for and, example, a greater distance. So, you know, if if uh if if a car is manufactured with parts built all over the world, then there's a very complicated, in economic terms, at least, non-zero sum game being played there. Um, because various workers are getting paid and And uh, and the consumer is getting something out of it and so on. This is a good example of how attendant to non zero sum game. There can be zero sum games. So uh, part of globalization is also low wage workers in one country competing um, with workers in another. And by the way, one of my arguments in non zero is that you should address these kinds of things via a kind of Global governance that is left leaning in some respects and doesn't shy away from getting into labor and environmental issues. But that that aside. Um, so at the end, at the end of the book, I'm emphasizing that there's all these non zero sum games among nations. Climate change is a non zero sum game. Either we all get together and do something about it or we all lose um, to oversimplify slightly, but not terribly. Um, there's a lot. There's other environmental problems like this, various kinds of arms control problems heading off pandemics. There's just tons of problems that either we get busy solving them um, or the planet is in deep trouble. And I think collectively they constitute an existential threat. And I think one of the main impediments, not the only impediment, but is, uh, you know, shortcomings of cognitive empathy is, is, and, and often it's like, there are kind of what I would call bad actors trying to shut down our cognitive empathy and and not and, and trying to demonize and villainize groups of people or nations or whatever in ways that ultimately impede the kind of cooperation you need to get the non the win-win outcome of the non-zero-sum game. And the and the and the apocalypse speaking not too facetiously, I mean, it's not literally like a biblical apocalypse, but the very very bad planetary outcome would be letting all of these things spiral down into a lose lose outcome. I think that that is an existential threat to the planet.
1: Um, do you see? Do you see the political situation in the United States? In a, it feels zero sum in, in terms of the polarization, but it, it also I can see a way that there's a well, there, yeah, a, a non zero nature to it too. Yeah, in, I mean in that are, the the outcome of of the election will de- determine the, or the the, the direction that the type of game that the that the that the that our uh, administration is willing to play, in a certain sense.
0: Um. Well, that is true. Yes, I mean, I guess I'd say. Uh, um, I mean, first of all, again, there are zero sum games, and. Uh, You know, I I, and one thing I have encouraged is try to look at the world from the point of view of Trump supporters. I mean, abandon the idea that you can just say, well, they're all racists. Um, And even if you think they are all racists, at least get interested in the question of how they became that way. Right. Like what is it? What kind of worldview and series of influences led the ones who are racist to be racist? And here I would say. Um, there is a perception uh, among a number of them that there is a non-zero-sum game between some low-wage white workers and immigrants, okay? Do you and mean zero-sum? Do you see
1: zero-sum? I'm sorry, I, I,
0: I meant to say zero-sum game. There is yeah. a zero-sum game. That's the perception. It's not entirely crazy. Any economist will tell you that in the short term, although immigration can bring great benefits in the long run and in the short run, in the short run, it can create competition for jobs that in the short run are finite. So, I mean, I I guess I'd say what a politician like Trump does is he takes accurate perceptions of zero-sum dynamics and exploits them in a way that creates illusions about larger zero-sum dynamics, like convincing his supporters that like people like you and me have just complete contempt for them and, and really actively want to uh, make their lives miserable. And this gets back to why I think that, um, you know, some of the resistance has been so counterproductive. It actually reinforces the idea that we have contempt for them. You know, that's, that's what Trump wants them to think. Um. So, but ultimately, yeah, we are all in the same country and they're, a huge number of actual non-zero sum dynamics
1: and so, huge, so, yeah let me just to, to clarify for a second would you say then that zero sum dynamics tend have a greater tendency to amplify emotional empathy versus non-zero sum dynamics
0: i actually because, think the per, I, th- I actually think it's the opposite i think the perception of a non-zero sum dynamic activates emotional empathy. Like if you, um, if you uh, see somebody and they're nice to you and you think you can do business with them, let's say you meet them on an airplane and you have a common interest and you might, you can see how you might fruitfully collaborate. I think if they tell you uh, some sad tale about one of their children being gravely ill, you're gonna be more inclined to say, oh, not just say, but kind of feel. Oh, I'm I'm so sorry for you, you know. Whereas, whereas if 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 it's like somebody you're identifying as an enemy, an asshole, I, I think that tends to shut down uh emotional empathy as well. Now, there there are wrinkles to this, it can be more complicated, but I think often that's the case. Now, does that strike
1: you as counterintuitive? It did strike me as counterintuitive. I mean, feel? because because if yeah, I mean, I'm thinking of something like where even even with the, the the example of tennis doubles, where I'm in a non-zero time some dynamic with my partner playing, mm-hmm. you know, if we lose, I, it's, the, the, it's the blame is distributed between me and the the, the partner, so it's it sort of it doesn't hit me emotionally as bad as if I were say i mean it, it, other factors could come into this, but if i'm playing a zero sum game and i lose it it's entirely my fault that would seem to have more of a, 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 a emotional valence than 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 the than the shared loss maybe maybe yeah but i'm I'm thinking about things like climate change where you know it is a a non zero sum issue and it's it seems so big that it almost it doesn't activate the same like urgency that it should and that's the biggest problem i think with, with the climate change issue is that it's a sort of it doesn't it doesn't animate enough outcry um like it's sort yeah. of it's some, some it's somebody else's problem that's going to be figured out kind of
0: yeah the the um yeah i mean uh i mean the thing about uh Climate change, the, the, the big sticking point with climate change in America is, has nothing to do with empathy one way or the other. There are people who are not convinced that it's even in their own interest to solve the problem. They've been convinced that it's not a problem. There's also the fact that it's a long-term problem. It's like sacrifices we make today are not gonna help us. They're gonna help our kids. But even so, there are a lot of people who just think um, you have been convinced that it's not a serious uh, problem. And I don't think it's good to treat them with contempt and and to call them deniers as opposed to skeptics personally, um, I think that's going to impede persuasion. Uh, I you know deniers to me it, it evokes horrible you know kinds of deniers. It, whereas skeptics you know. Um, but anyway, uh, I, I so I think that's not. I, I mean, here's the thing about to solve certain, a lot of non-zero sum problems. It isn't that you need cognitive empathy. Well. Or emotional empathy in order to want to solve them. The point of a non-zero-sum problem is it's in your interest to solve it, okay? It's just that to solve it, you need to cooperate with other people. That's characteristic of non-zero-sum problems. And sometimes not understanding where they're coming from can get in the way of the cooperation. Or to get get back to China, uh, you know, shutting down the cognitive empathy as well as... uh, well, I'll, we can get back to emotional empathy, but shutting down yeah. cognitive empathy could lead to such estrangement that no cooperation on any of these
1: global problems
0: is realistic for decades. That's my concern. Um,
1: so you wanted to talk about Trump supporters and, and you know, I've heard you do this before. And, and the thing that I think needs to be teased out is, is that developing cognitive empathy for a Trump supporter is not the same as defending their position or capitulating your, or, you know seeding oh. your position. And I think that's the thing that it, it emotionally rubs me whenever I try to do that. I feel like, Oh, if I'm going to open up and to consider what their, yeah. what their experience is, then it, it feels like a loss of something with me. Uh,
0: it's funny when I used to write in the early uh, part of the aughts arguing that like, The reason we had a terrorist problem is because we kept like bombing other countries and stuff. I would get blowback from the right. Ann Coulter said I had sympathy for terrorists because I was just explaining their behavior. I wasn't trying to defend it. I was just telling you, if you want to put it into the terrorism, maybe you should think seriously about what causes it. And basically, just about every Islamic extremist who has ever shot up anywhere in America has said You know, I'm doing this because you're killing Muslims in Afghanistan or Iraq or somewhere. And 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 when and 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 that was so in that case, it was the right who was saying, oh, to explain is to excuse. You know, it's a famous French expression to know all is to forgive all. And, And that does capture something about human nature. Okay, it is a natural tendency. The more you understand people to be to to be willing to forgive them. Uh, But I encourage everyone to just put that intuition on hold. Try to separate the processes of explanation and like exoneration or adjudication or whatever. Just put aside the question of whether you're going to wind up deciding they are to blame, they should be punished, whatever, and allow yourself to explore what seems to be the most plausible explanation for behavior without worrying about that stuff. Anyway, to complete the circle, now when I say let's look at the root causes of Trumpism, just as I used to say, let's look at the root causes of terrorism, I get the blowback from the left. And, and I'm making the same argument in both cases. If you have something you don't like,
1: try to understand why it's happening. And the reason f- you want to understand why it's happening is, is so you can do something about it. Something other than- how, you'll have to fill in that sentence for me. Well, not, yeah, no, it, you're not successfully you know, my,
0: leading the witness here or I'm a dumb sorry. witness.
1: Well, no, no. The, I mean, it's the emotional reactivity that is it is the, the, the alternative action.
0: Yeah. Rather than just reacting, I mean, think, reflect and do something, you know, and this is a very, very Buddhist, as you know. I mean, there's a lot of emphasis in Buddhism on skillful action, which, so, which, know, which involves like suspension of judgment,
1: right? So uh, I hear an argument forming in my head. Let's play devil's advocate. That that sounds like it. it it's not necessarily sort of forgiving, but if, if there's a if there's a boot at your neck, or if there's a boot on your neck, which many people feel that, that the this administration is effectively doing, it, you know, it's hard to just sit back and not take a take a more heated response.
0: Well, if there's literally a boot on your neck, I don't recommend sitting back. But I mean, that's the that's the thing. There are times when, upon reflection, you'll realize radical action is in order. I mean, I don't. But even then, it should be re, you should reflectively reach that conclusion. Um, and I just think, look, another good example of this is. Uh, well, I won't get any I won't dig myself any any, any deeper with uh, with uh, card carrying resistance uh, members. But, um, you know, I, I thought there was a certain amount of reactivity about the Russia Gate thing that wasn't healthy. I mean, I mean, I think it's still possible that there is a smoking gun somewhere there. I always thought it's possible and I don't think we can rule that out. But I also thought all along the evidence that everyone's seizing on gleefully is not itself determinative. And if we spend too much time and energy accusing him of, of being a Manchurian candidate and, and, and the accusation isn't corroborated solidly in the end, we may regret having done it. And I, and I think some people think it was not time and energy well spent, but, and and that was, I, I think in some ways that was reactive and not, not reflective
1: enough. Um, And in terms of Trump supporters, what, you know, did, you're advocating of a, in your on your and what would that actually look like in, in in looking at what's animating or motivating or giving rise to their position what would you start to see what would you what kind of variables or conditions would you tease out in that analysis
0: you mean what's my theory of the case in terms of what does motivate trump supporters
1: right because i mean this is obviously probably going to an audience that is less populated with the trump supporters <laughs> who presumably could engage with kind of this cognitive exercise you're advocating.
0: Well, I think first of all, it's not just one thing to think of all Trump supporters as like a whole is a kind of essentialism,
1: right? They're not a homogenous blob.
0: Yeah. Which, and as you know, Buddhism is kind of against essentialism in a number of senses of the word, Um, but, but, uh, but including this, I mean, it's just, it's just a simplistic view and I should say, and look, if people and maybe this helps explain why I seem so intent on understanding Trump supporters, three of my four siblings voted for Trump. And <laughs> did your eyes open wider when I said that? Yeah, um, the, uh, the uh, and they were motivated by different things. OK. One of them hates the Clintons that above all else, both Clintons, not just Hillary. Is that because
1: Bill liked your book Non Zero?
0: <laughs> I don't think so. Um I doubt he even knows that Bill liked my book Non Zero, but um uh the uh another is is like an evangelical homeschooler. Abortion is a huge issue. There's that. Um there, you know, so it's a lot of different things. I, I do think um you know, more than people realize. I think one thing is true of people generally is they want to think of themselves as good, right? So if you imagine like the average Trump supporter is sitting there fuming, using the N-word and all these pejoratives for Latinos or whatever, I, maybe I'm naive, but I think a whole lot of them are not doing that i think people want to think of themselves as as good people uh that said i i think a lot of them are still uh yeah they 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 are uh, some of them feel insecure about uh the 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 fate of of white people and and they would say that that's they don't think that's racism that they you know they they would say look uh I you know I, but the main thing is I think it's a lot of little things and I think I think at a minimum just understanding the narrative that Trump is deploying helps you not fall into the trap of reinforcing the narrative it's like I'd settle for that and I do think the resistance has gotten a little better I think it was worse at the beginning when when people would just make these uh, flat pejorative generalizations about Trump supporters but I still think that more than we realize a lot of the clickbaity anti-Trump headlines and so on reinforce Trump's narrative about the media being biased against him. A lot of little things reinforces his narrative. But look, we'll know soon enough whether this particular nightmare will have passed. Uh, um, And I don't. So we've been at this an hour. Um, You know, I really want to thank people who've actually stuck with this and actually shown up for live stream. Um and while you think of anything else you may want to talk about, I'm gonna glance at the comments, uh, which in theory could be useful if I was dexterous enough to like carry on a conversation while
1: looking at yeah. comments. You could like I mean that's what I'm wondering. Should I be scrolling through the the feed and, and picking up
0: uh I don't That'd know, be- but but I, I want to reassure people. Uh, wait, is that Mark Ambinder? The Mark Ambinder? Uh, he's a journalist. <laughs> is that? Uh, and I may be pronouncing your name wrong, Mark. Anyway, I, I'm just glancing. Um, we will read all these. and And people should also, there are other ways to communicate with us if they want to weigh in on And anybody, anybody who listens to this later, watches it later on YouTube, listens um, on the podcast, um, you can email at nonzero. The email address is nonzero.news at gmail.com. If you put like Josh Summers in the subject heading or something, that will distinguish it. It'll make it easier for me to find. I can just, um, because we get, there are different kinds of email that show up there. Um, You could tweet at me Either at Robert Ryder or at Darwin Dharma, which is my like kind of Buddhist feed, and 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 you are at middle way Josh, the way it sounds, on Twitter. But are there um I mean it's 901 and people are maybe heading off to watch the Democratic Convention shortly? Are there other things? I mean, I find, let me say, I find this conversation very fruitful. I, I realize it's a little self-indulgent in that I did more than 50% of the talking. Um but are there other things you wanted to say or thoughts you have about where this might head?
1: I guess I've just been, um, if I take your thesis at face value that cognitive empathy would be a good thing, it, 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 I do feel like we're, it's, we're up against this very fast, you know, to use the thinking fast and slow model of mental processes. We're dealing with a very fast emotional yeah. gut system, that um i think is quite hard to uh overcome and transcend yeah um, and, and then that just sort of reinforces and, and skews perception and and really can make it quite hard to, to take in take on that that leap of well what is going on with them or why are they doing this and, um, i think the, the 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 ways that i've found it helpful to to develop i think more cognitive empathy is to to, look more, to, to contextualize and to, 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 to sp- uh, step off the individual. So if it's to say it's a person in a family, rather than looking at them and assigning blame to their behavior, I might try to look at more of the systemic issue in the family and even intergenerational dynamics in the family that cause a certain kind of trauma or development to continue and perpetuate. Um, and when I do that, you know, then, then the, 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 the person or the group that's bugging me is not so much you know, the the, the loathed agent, but they're more of a symptom of a systemic dysfunction. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that, I mean, that could also sound patronizing. I don't mean it that way. It's just, it, I find it a more, well, a more helpful way to try to look at things. Well, it, it, well, can, it, it, it it's and and then essentializing, as you're saying, essentializing I mean, the it, other. It's,
0: I would say it's another sense in which, I mean, it's not cognitive empathy per se, because you're not just asking yourself, well, how does this person look at the world? You're asking how they came to be the, you know, earlier forces shaped them. But what that has in common with cognitive empathy is explaining how they came to be doing what they're doing. And that in turn can affect emotional empathy. It can make it easier to sympathize with them if they've been doing things that are annoying you. And the whole interaction between cognitive empathy and emotional empathy is interesting, can work in both ways. Um, and it also, by the way, raises a challenge you presented, like, wait a second, are you saying that in explaining, you know, to explain it at the system level is to absolve them of responsibility for their behavior? I'm sure
1: you get that. Um, and, no, but and, it, do, it does make you think about how you treat it. How you address it, how you address it. I mean, think of something like addiction, you know, addiction itself. You know, it tends to be ascribed to blaming the individual for deficits that get them hooked and this and that. But obviously there's so many contextual issues that predispose someone and condition someone to to take that track.
0: I, I mean, on the point you made about how complicated it is to avoid reacting in the moment, I mean, yeah, if we continue these conversations, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll need to spend time on social media and actual techniques, you know, for not getting drawn into it in an unhealthy way or a way that leads you to be too um, reactive. But I, I, it's a, it is a very, it's it. all the, you know, all these things I'm saying are easy to preach and not necessarily easy to practice. I mean,
1: it, did you ever see that? I don't know why this popped in my head, but did you ever see those ad busters? Like it was, I don't know if it was a magazine filled with them or if it was just occasional ads that they, they really juxtaposed two things against each other in such a way it, it snapped you into a different way of seeing. I don't like think very, I very did.
0: I'm trying to think if that was the thing that was somehow connected to the Occupy movement. Seems like early on the opponents of the Occupy movement tried to, Oh, yeah. Condemn it by virtue of its association with something. And I was thinking Adbusters was it. But anyway, I, I, I don't know them No.
1: Well, when you were talking about how to engage in social media in a way to to to, to, to tweak more cognitive empathy, it seemed like that might be a, a convention that could be used. Hmm. So something something similar drawn from how they were juxtaposing things and, and kind of making you really think about sort of an ironic twist or helping you see it from a different perspective. That, that breaks up kind of the illusion that you've been spelled spellbound by.
0: mm
1: uh-huh. by. I will uh, I'll I look mean, send me, up. send me stuff. I'll take a look. I, it's been ages since I've looked at it. But um, the other thought I had though, is that uh, when you do take a more systemic look and see, I mean, one of the tenets of Buddhism as we both know is that nothing arises independently. It's this, this doctrine of dependent origination, that, that there is no entity that is, that is, independently existing and um, <clears throat> in terms of our experience of distress and particularly this self-generated distress which I think is you're getting as this this like unforced errors of overreaction that cause that lead to less optimal outcomes or less optimal engagement um, that self-generated distress t- is diagnosed as arising due to a, a, an ignorant view or an uh, in, inability to comprehend and, and, and accurately co- see what's occurring. Mm-hmm. So that's where I think the mindfulness piece comes in is that it, it starts to help, or at least it attempts to help take a more sober, objective leaning perspective on, what the, on what's going on rather than having the filter of the, the emotional empathy be the driver.
0: Oh, totally. I mean, in a number of senses. I mean, I mean, first of all, mindfulness can give you an apprehension of what you described, the kind of the interconnectedness of it all. It, it can even make you appreciate uh, the kind of porousness of the bounds of, quote, the self, have more of a sense of how you are, uh, you know, kind of integrated with various influences impinging on you. Um, but also, yeah, just the gives you the ability to reflect on when it's working. And, and like many things, it's easy to
1: talk about, not necessarily easy to practice. Um, well, I will say, you know, after I blew up at the, the owners of the, the little white dog, it was only three steps. I, I mean, I, I felt mortified. I yeah, absolutely mortified. I was like, holy, what did I do? That was ridiculous. And I am still, com- I'm, I have to brush up on my Chinese, but I will be issuing a hand-delivered apology at some point.
0: Well, that's great. I mean, it would be so cool if you had an actual conversation in Chinese with them. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, if this were the movie, we know it would end with them having tea in your apartment. Um, dumplings, you know, dumplings, yes,
1: bow, bow, bow. So
0: So, uh, but yeah, I mean, there's there's a there's a lot here. So, uh, but mindfulness, yeah, it it can it, it can give you the ability to observe the feelings that are about to get you to do something before they get you to do it. And in principle, and, and uh, it is, it's happened with me. It doesn't always happen, unfortunately, but it, is, it has happened to, to allow you to to engage more selectively with your feelings in a certain sense and not, that, well, that's misleading, but to, to decide whether you want to be led by them. Um, some feelings are great. Love being led by them. Sure. Don't, don't hurt sure. the world. It's great. Um, so if do it you think, right uh so it seems to me it would be fun to have a third conversation and maybe work on very coming up with like kind of applied examples maybe from the the news of that week and or our own lives or something
1: and um, yeah and i I also think what we want to encourage is audience participation feedback questions uh points for clarification absolutely if you write
0: them in this YouTube column to the right of the screen right now, we will see them. If you send them to nonzero.news at gmail.com, we will see them. If you tweet at either of us, we will see them. Uh, and if we if we don't have time to answer and just like them, rest assured we read them, took them seriously. Um, and uh, I think, I guess we need to talk. I, I think we, we both, my own view on live streaming is, I don't totally understand the, vir- the virtues of it in a way. It makes me nervous, uh, and well, so maybe I, actually had,
1: I had a thought about that on my walk today. Uh, what's your thought? Do you watch sports? Yeah, too much. Do you watch recorded games or live games?
0: Uh, almost always recorded. So
1: you're I, sometimes one of those they're guys. still going you're-
0: on, but I join. You know, I join them early. So I mean, I join them late so I can skip commercials or something.
1: I can't, I don't watch recorded games. Somehow knowing it's already done, it's like, it just loses all pizzazz.
0: So that's a virtue of the live stream. Even though the fact is uh, in our last live stream, a large majority of people did watch it later, which is good that there was a large majority show up. Um, But I mean, I think it's kind of cool. I think it'd be cooler if I did get better at like actually looking at comments and maybe responding in real
1: time. There's gotta be, there's gotta be a formula for that. I think it, it must have like an, an iPad screen on the side. We can scroll through. I think I that think would
0: it, be. The problems are in my brain, not with, not in the technological apparatus. I'm just, I'm not good at multitasking, but, um, and we don't have like a producer who highlights the comments and shows us one, you know, the um. anyway, should we, well, should we, so we agree. Your your game for one more conversation, in which sure. case the question is: Is it a live stream? I think we agreed earlier that if it is, it it needs to be Wednesday next week at eight instead of Thursday. Right. Um yeah. Should yeah. we should we Ball, do is that?
1: Ballroom ballroom dancing on Thursdays for you now?
0: <laughs> it's no, uh, but I but uh, for various reasons, it's better better for me to. Uh, that's fine. Wednesday we're doing, uh, yeah. So, um, so should we agree on that, or or should we just tell people to check out our Twitter feeds? No, let's just say we'll do it. Okay, okay. Wednesday at eight, and then we will know more about the future of these, <laughs> whether yeah. they'll whether the future exists, whether they'll be on live stream and so on. But as of uh, but 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 so that's Wednesday the twenty sixth of August. Michael AP. Brooks, smash the like button. As Michael Brooks says, smash that YouTube like button. And yeah, special shout out to his fans. Um yes. and uh I, I hope we have uh done him justice. Um so so thank you, Josh. Uh yeah, thanks, Bob. I guess the way you, you end a live stream is to click end, right?
1: Yeah, if you don't click in, yeah. We gotta say Give a good farewell to everybody. Great to have you. Appreciate your presence.
0: Thank you. And I'm even going to write that in the YouTube column after we, or, or uh, after, after I click in, I'm going to, I'm going to go that far. And I, that's oh. how conversant I am in this live streaming technology. So this is the second, second round. So I'll see you, I'll see you Wednesday. I hope, I hope you've had another encounter with your neighbor by then.
1: I will I'll update you then.
0: Make it happen. Okay. <laughs> okay. See you around. Take care. Bye-bye.